Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. John Warlow is the founder of the Value Builder System, host of Built to Sell Radio, and author of best-selling books, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, The Automatic Customer, Creating a Subscription Business in Any Industry, and The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. He also has personal experience in selling a business that he was told was unsellable. Um, so I'm really interested in hearing that. And he's interviewed over 300 uh, founders and entrepreneurs uh, on uh, preparing to exit their business. Uh, so listeners you uh, and viewers, you uh, you know clearly have uh, no doubt on why I'm having and I've been wanting to have John Warlow on the podcast. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Corey. Awesome. So listen. Before we get into all that great stuff and the, you know, all the great work you do with clients and the personal journey and stories, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be growing up? Because my guess is, you know, a, a somebody who sold companies and, uh, you know, writes books and, and has a radio and, and works with all these folks might not have been it at that age, but you tell me. <laughs> I wanted to be Mike Wallace. Do you remember Mike Wallace from 60 Minutes? I used to love it when he would go to like the car mechanics that had been rolling back the odometers and, you know, put them on the spot and stick the microphone in their face and say, you know, like, what have you done? And, 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 you know, I love that. I love that show to this day, gosh, 30 years, 40 years later, I still watch 60 minutes, even though the whole crew has changed and they're all right, right, right. different. But if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, I'd, I'd probably be a, a I'd, I'd want to be a 60 minutes host. I'm not sure if they take me, but that's probably so what I'd be that, that investigative uh, journey. Journalism yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, listen, you do interview people, right? So there's, uh, you know, there's at least a little bit of a, of, of a through line there. One more question looking back, and this could be, you know, something small you did as a kid or early in your career. What's the first deal that you, of any type that you remember doing? Oh, gosh, I was Johnny the Juice Man in grade six. So Johnny the Juice Man was my nickname because I sold juice in grade six cafeteria, in the grade six cafeteria. And I got the job because the guy who sold the juice got to leave class early to get the little counter set up at lunchtime. Okay. So I got to get out of class 15 minutes early to, <laughs> to get the juice stand set up. So I was, uh, I was Johnny the Juice Man. That was probably my first deal. That's it. That's your first deal and your, and your first uh, personal branding, huh? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, that was, and that was before uh, personal branding became a thing, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Especially internet-wise. <laughs> I love it. Well before. <laughs> so, you know, we gave, we gave a bit about your bio, but, you know, give us just a little bit, like, how did you go from Johnny the Juice Man to, um, you know, uh, being the guy uh, in terms of, you know, talking about how people prepare to exit and, Build enterprise value, oh, and you know, and selling your own company. Uh, give us a little bit of the journey, so people have a little more history. Yeah, a bit of a securities journey. I'll keep it short. I I've been involved in in building a, a few service businesses. Uh, one in particular was a, a quantitative market research business. I went to see a, a business broker to see if 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 he could sell it, and and it was a business that was you know it was it was a great business. We had big clients. Microsoft was a client. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, Bank of America. Yep. So I thought I was sitting on a gold mine. We had about five or six million in revenue, we, you know, 20, 30% profit margins. So I thought, man, this is going to go, you know, this is going to go for a huge price. And I, and I went to talk to this, this M&A guy in, in Toronto. His name is Perry Miele. I'll never forget. He sat me down in his office. I said, like, kind of, what do you think it's worth? And I was rubbing my hands together waiting for the answer. And, and it kind of appeared to me over his glasses and said, well, all right, well, let me ask you a couple of questions. And I'm like, shoot. He's like, you're in the research business, right? And I'm like, yep. So, all right, well, like, who does the research? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm just like, 
Bank of America. Like I've got to, you know, be involved. I certainly approve. And all right, well, who does the selling? I'm like, it's it's Perry. It's these big clients that you know they they need me to go to the meetings. Like I got to be the front guy. And and he said, let me get this straight. You're in the research business. You do the research and you do the selling. And I'm like, I guess I guess when you put it that way, yeah. And he said, well, John, I can't sell your business. It's worthless. Yeah. And, and I, I remember to this day, I mean, this goes back, Corey, a long time ago, uh, 20 years ago, excuse me. I can remember that conversation and feeling like an inch tall. And I went in there feeling eight feet tall, right? Like I went in oh, yeah. thinking I was sitting on this gold mine and I left his office realizing that I'd made every mistake in the book, that the business was too dependent on me. And anyways, long story short, you know, I took that cold shower and, and hard medicine. We made a bunch of changes to the company. Perry was a great advisor along the way. Um, we, we put in a subscription model. We hired salespeople. We stopped getting out of custom, you know, and, and, and we built it up uh, to a like kind of a smaller version of a Gartner group. And, and we ultimately sold to the company that you now know as Gartner Group, big New York Stock Exchange listed company. And, and that would never have happened had we not really did a 180 degree change on what we were doing, how we were approaching it. So it's got a happy ending, but it was, uh, it was, it was a difficult time. And, and that's probably what got me into uh, helping other entrepreneurs think through, you know, how they might exit their company, what, you know, what the value of their business might be, how it could be improved, et cetera. Yeah. So, so John, so you mentioned, you know, a couple of the, of the key elements you know, obviously making the, the uh, business less dependent upon you. And that's something that in the entrepreneurial circles, you hear about a lot. I've been a member of entrepreneurs organization for, you know, a long time. And around, you know, around EO, I was president of the York chapter. I, you know, even when I travel internationally, like it's the whole thing, right? Michael Gerber, Emeth, you know, oh, not all in, of this you stuff, know, right? You know, have yeah, the business, yeah, yeah. you know, be less dependent upon you. That, that's not a new concept, uh, at least for in the entrepreneurial circles. But the truth is most people don't really managed to get that done. You'd also talked about, which I want to hold aside, but I want to put a footnote here on subscription models, right? The whole conversation recovering revenue and how that uh, that improves stuff. So, but before we go to, to that, I'm always interested in mindset shift, right? Because I'm a big believer that there's a mindset, uh, you know, mindset of a deal maker, there's a mindset of an entrepreneur, there's a mindset of a deal maker, which is different than the mindset of an entrepreneur. Um, and as a, a leader entrepreneur, we can understand intellectually these concepts, but nothing's going to change unless we really shift our mindset around it, right? So before we talk about how you work with other people on that, what happened in your mindset? I mean, obviously, it sounds like this conversation you shared was a challenge, right? And 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 triggered this need to, but, but like, what had you, what was that process of like shifting the mindset of how you built your business and how proud of you, you know, you were to having it become less dependent on you? Like, what did that really take? Yeah, I, I think it took an appreciation of, of the way as entrepreneurs, we celebrate success and why that's so hollow. So if you think about the way entrepreneurs are taught to, to recognize one another, we, we, we quickly at a cocktail party start asking how many employees you have. And why do we do that? It's because it's a proxy for how successful you are. Yeah. If you employ lots of people, our assumption is you are successful. I think that's completely wrongheaded. I also think it's wrongheaded to celebrate the top line revenue growth of the company. So if you think about the Inc. 500, now the Inc. 5,000. There are tons of unprofitable companies. There are thousands of businesses that have given up all of their equity. They're minority shareholders and companies, but it's because they are so determined to be recognized for their growth rate. And yeah. there's an old expression that revenue is vanity. And I think there, you know, for me, I realized I was chasing the wrong stuff. I was chasing the vanity metrics, which are revenue, number of employees, Inc. 5,000 in Canada, it's called the Profit 100. It's not, it's long since gone away, but we as, and, and, and we celebrate these things as if they are what, what is to be celebrated. And to me, we need to take a step back and say, actually, if revenue comes at the expense of the value of your company, it, it's actually undesirable. If if your growth comes at the expense of having to share equity, give it away, give all your decision-making authority away to VC, it's actually undesirable or something you should at least think very deeply about before you do. And, and so what I would encourage and what I started to do, mindset shift, Corey, is I started to think of myself 
differently. I, and this interestingly kind of corresponded with the time I became a parent. Mm. And I realized quickly that in, and you know this, as soon as you become a parent, like you realize, oh my gosh, like it's not all about me anymore. Now I have to think about other people. And like, and, and so I started to think about my company in a different light. And that was that I was the, the parent of my company. And, and again, I don't know about you, but when I think about my aspiration for my kids, like I don't care if they go to Harvard or they're the captain of the football team. Like my goal is that, that once they're done in the house and we've got one leaving soon, so I'm hypersensitive to this right now, that they can, they can go out into the world and, and succeed on their own terms, be independent without me. And so my whole job as a dad has been my, I happen to have two boys. So how do I get these guys out of the house and to be able to kind of stand on their own two feet independently? And so I started thinking about my company in the same way. I said, like the ultimate goal here is not necessarily to hit the, you know, Inc 500. It's to get my business to thrive without me, to, to basically succeed without me having to pull all the strings in the background. And so it was a mind shift shift from thinking of myself as the CEO driver, going to hit the top line goal to I'm a parent of my company. And I want to, I want to find a way for it to start to kind of get it on its own two feet without me. That's a huge mindset shift. And I think it's one that a bit of a head scratcher for a lot of people until they start to absorb it. Yeah, I, I love that, you know, and and like I said, I'm so fascinated by mindset shift because I, I really believe that nothing truly is going to happen unless we, ha- you know, we have a mindset shift as uh, the entrepreneurs, owners, leaders, executives, at, you know, at companies. And, uh, and that also changes what you measure. I mean, it's interesting, like, uh, you know, there are these vanity metrics, right? It's it's, a, it's like the uh, the business equivalent of the old golf saying that, you know, you drive for show and putt for dough. <laughs> right. You know, um, you know, it's it, it's a similar thing. Right. Top line revenue. Who cares? I mean, uh, yes, there are certain SaaS businesses that, you know, yeah. uh, have vanity metrics that make a difference. Like you see it, you know, with 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 adoption users and that kind of stuff because they know they monetize later. OK, everybody can come up with an exception. But in general, right, most businesses and you're right in the entrepreneurial community. I mean, listen, EO is an example. Uh, I'm not putting them down. I love the EO community. But the measure that a test to be an EO is a revenue. Measure, yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You, know, you need a million dollars a year. You know, YPO is the same. You know, they have chapters that need five, 10 million, whatever it is. But it's, it's all top line revenue. There's reasons for that because they're not going to start measuring even in profit or whatever. It's too hard to track. So I get why those organizations do that. But I mean, you could be making $10 million at, at you know, at 4% margins, right? Or someone else could be at $2 million at 60% margins, right? So what is it that, you know, you mentioned subscription, you mentioned some other stuff. So once you have that mindset shift where you're no longer you know, driving for show, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yep. What do you start tracking now that is not those vanity metrics, you know, to, to, to now measure, you know, this new definition of success? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some qualitative things like how many times in the day you get asked for approval to do to, like someone to, to do yeah. something. So there's some qual like, how are my vacations? I'm, do I feel confident when I go away? Am I having to like deal with, a lot of customer crises all the time. Like those are qualitative assessments. I, I'm a big believer in having evaluation done, you know, once a year at a minimum, just to see how you're tracking. But really, you know, if you think about it, the the value of a company comes down to sort of two numbers. I, I don't mean to debase or simplify the you know process of valuing a company down to its core to this extent, but really it's, you know, what multiple of your profit is somebody willing to pay? And again, with SaaS companies, it's a multiple of revenue, but for the most part, it's going to be a multiple of, of profit. And so the two numbers are going to be your profit and the multiple someone's willing to pay. And most entrepreneurs, I think, make the mistake of obsessing over your profit. And what I would say is it's an important, but not the only variable in the value of your company, because the the multiple is driven by, in our experience, or what we believe, eight unique factors about your company. And so if you focus only on your profitability and, and don't ever focus on the multiple that they're applying, it's a it's a fool's errand effectively. You you want to you want to focus on both your profitability, but also the multiple. So the drivers of the multiple are going to be things like your proportion of recurring revenue over one-time revenue, much yeah. 
you know, acquirers are going to place a much higher value on recurring revenue. Something we call the Switzerland structure, which is an over-dependence on a single company customer, employer, supplier, you know, things like your, what we call valuation teeter-totter, but it's basically your cash flow, different than your profitability. Effectively, how much cash your company is generating, that's important because an acquirer is going to have to write a check for working capital. And if they don't have to write a check for working capital, they're going to be able to write a bigger check to you. However, the opposite is true. If you have to write a big check for working capital, it's going to lower the attractiveness of your business. So there's these eight factors that what, that drive your multiple and they that multiple is then applied to your profitability. So profitability is important, but as it's equally important, if not more than the multiplier that it is used to, to arrive at evaluation. And that multiplier is driven by these eight unique factors. Yeah. And, and I love that because, you know, in terms of, you know, continuing the theme of mindset shift, right? I do believe like the first mindset shift people have when they learn, maybe if they get there is, okay, oh, it's not about revenue. It's about profit or, you know, the deal where we usually refer to as EBITDA, right? But I think they, so they may get there, but so many fewer people understand this super important point that you make about what are these factors that affect the multiple? Because, right, you know, all right, great, yeah, work on, you know, become more profitable, more profitable, that's excellent. But, you know, if you're at two times EBITDA or five times EBITDA or eight times EBITDA or, or you know, I'm doing deals in the financial service space now that are at 14 and 16 times, you know, uh, EBITDA, um, you know, obviously there's a huge difference, you know, if you're getting, if you're getting a five and you're getting a 15, right? Um, so, and I, and I do think this is an area people understand a lot less about. So, um, so talk to me a little bit about, and, you know, if you feel like sharing some of the other factors, it's great. If not, but like, how do you, obviously you've got the books out, you got the radio show, but what, like, but you work with companies to, you know, basically have them have the learnings you had, right? <laughs> that you were shocked into realizing in, in, in your company, your example you shared. Like, what, So how do you work with folks to help them move along this journey and create more profitable and sellable companies? Yeah. So for me, I do the podcast. That's my yep. you know main uh, contribution to the world of entrepreneurship. But I and I you know it's called Built Star Radio, and I, and I do a new episode every week. And we talk to an entrepreneur who's recently sold their company. My day job is I run a company called Value Builder, which is sales and marketing software yep. for M and A professionals and other advisors that help entrepreneurs think about the value of their company. So that's a that's my day job. That's Value Builder, and that's a SaaS company that's sales and marketing software. But really, my my focus, uh, you know, personally, and what I kind of get excited about is the podcast. And one of the things, you know, you're talking about mindset shift and, you know, we were talking about mindset before. One of the things that I think entrepreneurs can do when they think about mindset shifts is, is remember that it, you know, when I, I'll do a speech to a group of entrepreneurs and I'll, I'll say, you know, what sport most closely resembles entrepreneurship? you know, starting building a business, like you know, sporting events, right? Is it a boxing match? Is it like an F, you know, uh, a NASCAR race or whatever? And and the number one thing that, number one answer I get, for I'll ask you, Corey, what do you think the, the answer I get in terms of the, the sporting event that most closely resembles entrepreneurship? Oh, that's a great question. I was thinking about it as you as you were talking, and I'm I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think two things. What what would I answer? What would most people answer? Right? Well, what would you, you know? answer? What are you thinking? Um, wow. See, the problem is I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm trying to think about a sport where you actually have to build something, where you don't just show up and <laughs> and, and play it, right? Because because freaking like, lawyer, so literal. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I can't. You know, it's just be, no because I also know what it takes to build businesses, right? You know, and I have other ones beyond the law firm and. And, and, and I'm like, wait a second, like all these other sports, you know, somebody's created the league and the stadiums and the, you know, and the whatever. And, you know, so, you know, for me, you know, it's, it's much more like of a, you know, maybe like a, like a robotics competition where you actually have to build the <laughs> robot, you know, than, than like football or baseball or, you know, whatever, but yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah. that's not the answer you get from most people. Well, I mean, look, I, I agree with you. There's definitely elements to, uh, to like a robotics competition, but if we, if we push to a sporting analogy, the most common answer I get to that question is a marathon, right? Okay, like yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. long, okay. yep. Yep. A yep. long, slow, unglamorous, lonely yep. slog, right? And there's a moment of glory at the very end when you cross the finish line, everybody goes, woo, all right, good job. And then, you know, but, but there were 26.2 miles before that, which were torturous and done in relative, you know, anonymity. Yes. And I think that's a, I think that's an apt 
analogy for a lot of what entrepreneurship is. What the mindset shift I would encourage listeners who are entrepreneurs building a business to have is that while it's your marathon, when you go and sell your company, the buyer is towing the starting line of their marathon. And for them, even though you've run 26 miles and you feel like it's the, it's the longest distance you could possibly conceive of, they're about to start a race. Yeah. And so they need to understand what's the future of your company, right? And, and for so many of us as entrepreneurs, we've been so focused on our company and achieving our goal. And we're very inside ourselves, right? Thinking about our customers and our employees. And it's very insular yep. that we forget that really the, the process of selling a business is selling someone who's about to start a journey on the road ahead. What's so exciting about the journey they're about to take. Yeah. And, and that can be a really hard thing for a lot of entrepreneurs to do. It's why a lot of entrepreneurs are well-served hiring an M&A professional. That's not what I do, by the way. That's not a self-serving plug. I think M&A professionals are in a good spot to have the objectivity to try to paint that picture of what's possible. Because for so many of us, like the con, like, you know, we're slogging it out, trying to get to 5 million, 10 million, whatever the number is in our mind that's important, right? But 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 the idea of going to 100 million is probably foreign for a, like it, it just but for an acquirer they have to understand how yes. the thing goes yes. from where you got it to to the next so i would just encourage people to remember that that it's while it's your marathon it's your finish line someone else is about to start their race and you have to paint that picture for them i i love that picture and it's so true you know we deal with this all the time and speaking with clients right there's two key aspects that i think what you're bringing up here one is, you know, the seller entrepreneur, right, is always so focused about what they've created and what they put into the business. And I, I can't tell you how many times I have to say to my clients, in large part, a acquirer doesn't care that you worked 80 hours a week for 20 years or whatever it was, right? They don't you, really got the, you know, the customer right? service award three years ago or that. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they want to know about the future, right? right. Yeah. So they want it, right. So what, one point is that you're going to overvalue what you put into this thing. Right. So that, that, you know, that because that raises another issue where a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs will overvalue the value of their business. Right. Because, right. they you know, they're looking at what it took them to build and inputs and whatever. And the, and the market doesn't care about that. Um, yes. I mean, there's some value. Maybe maybe if you've created some brand equity over that time, there's some value that goes into that. But the truth is, frankly, most businesses have not built brands that are <laughs> that have independent value from the customer relationships and people and product they serve. Uh, so that's number one. And then number two is right, the point that you highlighted even more, which is going forward. I mean, think about it. If you're a seller and you're looking to get full value for what you created, well, let's say you're able to negotiate that. If the buyer can't see the upside beyond that, then why would they buy it? They're going to pay you full value for something. Where How are they going to make money on it, right? They got to see that ability to get it from that five or 10 million you know, to a hundred million. Well, or, 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 I think you're absolutely right. They, you, you know, ideally they see the pathway to getting your business much larger or, and this happens to a lot of entrepreneurs, they think you, they can get your business on the cheap and that you're undervaluing it. So they'll go in and a lot of private equity companies do this and they will, you know, wine and dine you and make you make you feel uh, like the prettiest girl at the dance and sucker you into what's called in M&A parlance, a proprietary deal where you sign a letter of intent, give up negotiating leverage with a no shop clause yep. and effectively fall into the arms of an acquirer without a competitive process. And they do that because they know that they can quickly add value because they can sell you for more than you're valuing yourself. And that's another reason that I've seen this so many times that, that entrepreneurs, you know, again, we spend so much time in a fairly myopic, the the blinders are on, we're thinking about our business, we're focused on our customers, we're focused on our employees and somebody from the outside, often from a big prestigious company or sexy name says, wow, I love what you built. Would you ever consider partnering? And it's the first time we've been validated externally right. for a right. long time. And you're like, oh, wow, you, you oh, love you think what I'm pretty. Oh, great. Right. You think I'm, yeah, you think I'm pretty. And then they put a number on paper that's yeah. got more zeros than you've ever seen. 
And you're like, yeah, I'll take some of that. And you sign the no shop clause and then they've got you, right? They often retrade, they lower the, the ultimate value of the deal. You never create competitive attention. The reason they're doing that is it's very intentional. They're saying, I can get this, forgive the word, ignorant entrepreneur to sell me his business or her business for five times EBITDA. I can flip it tomorrow for eight times. If I add a little bit of juice to the top line, I can get 10 times. And if I scrape out, you know, some, some ancillary costs and some of the stuff that, you know, efficiencies, et cetera, I can increase the bottom line. And so it's very easy to see how they make money, you know, preying on the naivete of entrepreneurs. Yeah. And so, you know, my personal mission statement is to basically alleviate that and, and basically mitigate that and say, entrepreneurs, you, you need to become educated about how, you know, how to value your business, how to create competitive tension, why you should never sign a no shop clause until you've created that competitive tension, why you need an M&A professional, like all this stuff, because I've seen it so many times that entrepreneurs leave you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of dollars on the table because they're just, this is just not something they do every day. Yeah, no question about it. And, and, and listen, for those listeners and viewers who are, you know, have a little less experience, haven't been in the M&A space a lot. You know, that's why, I mean, good investment bankers in the space, right? You know, deal professionals, whatever, what they're going to, they're going to run a process. And when you hear that term run a process, it means that first of all, they're going to package you up in a way that makes you most attractive, right? They're going to tease out some of the things that John's been talking about, like how do you present the company in a way that shows not only its best light on its current value, but what the future opportunity is. But then they're also going to create a competitive process, right? They're going to put it out. They're going to have people put in bids. They're going to vet, you know, you're going to, you're going to get probably several, you know, LOIs depending upon what it is. And then you make a decision. And then it's only when you go to LOI, right? With one of those folks that you do give a no shop or exclusivity period just to do it because that's appropriate when you have chosen your, 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 sure. your, your number one suitor and you now are seeing whether you can get a deal done in that period, right? They don't You're want getting to engaged shop them to use once a marital analogy. Right. Yeah. So, so that's, that, that's, that's the appropriate time to do that. But prior to that, I, you know, I hundred percent agree with John and listen, you know, I, I also understand it from the, from the bias point of view. Uh, for example, I mean, just use an analogy. When I when I invest in, you know, in any spot people invest in real estate, we're always looking for off-market deals. You don't want an right. on-market deal, right? You don't want one that there's a lot of bidders on because you know the price is going to be higher. You want to find an off-market deal and nobody else that's not on a, on an MLS listing or and, a, in a broker's, you know. Uh, and, here, uh, and here's uh, one of the buyers. One of the hidden that one of the hidden downsides of of agreeing to an off-market deal. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're a business owner and you 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 say, but yeah, but these guys are offering me a fair price. They're great to work with. They appreciate me. They're good guys or gals or whatever. Like you, you can be kind of lulled into this sort of false sense of security. The, I mean, let's, let's be clear. Corporate buyers are some of the most sophisticated business people in the world, they know how to push your buttons to make you feel important. And so it's not surprising that you feel their warm embrace. But be clear, a year after you sell your company, you'll be sitting back on a rocking chair, looking at the sunrise one morning and say, did I leave money on the table? Something will jog your thought process. You'll read something. Someone will ask you a question. You'll see some other multiple that somebody got and they'll say, and you'll say to yourself, oh my gosh, did I leave money on the table? Did I leave perhaps millions of dollars on the table? And, and that is the biggest regret. You know, I think EPI did a study sharing that 74% of business owners have some regret a year after selling their business. And when we dug underneath that number, it was because they didn't create a competitive process. They never saw other bids. They took the first one they got and they will forever wonder, did I leave money on the table? So even if you run a competitive process, even if you don't increase the value of your business at all through the process, which I doubt is going to happen, but even if you do, you will be able to sleep at night knowing, look, I ran a process. I got 30 companies interested. I got six offers and I took the best one. Yeah. And I will forever know that for in that moment of time, I got the best offer that was on, on, on offer at the time. Great. You can sleep at night. Yeah. And listen, you, you may even, you know, not everybody chooses to take the highest dollar offer. That's not necessarily always the best offer. 
but at least you knew what that was. And then you made a conscious choice to take the second or third offer because they offered, you know, whatever it is, better pass for your employees, or you felt that they would keep your legacy in place, you know, longer or handle your clients better, or whatever the other factors are. But at least you got a full view of the market. And John, I, I want to get you into this because I think there's another factor we haven't talked about. Mm. Because on the one hand, a lot of these acquirers who are looking for you to do an off-market deal are pumping up your ego and saying you're the pr- prettiest girl at the dance or guy, you know, handsomest guy at the dance or whatever it is, um, and making you feel good. But they also very often, I think, are also creating fear as well, right? Like, sure. I mean, at the same time, oh, they love me and I don't want to lose this deal, right? That's the other half of it. And, they, you know, they will subtly or not so subtly a lot of times be like, hey, you know, listen, we got to move quickly. We're ready or whatever, you know, and, and they'll make it make you feel often like if you run a process or bring in a banker or God forbid, a lawyer. I mean, forget that because they always screw up deals. Um <laughs> That, uh, you know, that that you're going to risk losing this opportunity, uh, you know, so that that's a factor I certainly see as well. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and they will also sometimes amplify that by saying not only are we not going to do the deal if we don't sort of accelerate this, but maybe we'll just compete with you. Right. If they're a big corporate buyer, a strategic that is in the same industry, the veiled threat is if we don't do this deal, maybe we'll just create what you've created. So there's always that veiled threat, whether they articulate it or not, right. it's there. And, and you know, uh, acquirers do MA, pro- like, like large companies do, you know, sign uh, NDAs. And they do go through the diligence process to get information. Like it, it is part of the way they do business. Now, I'm not suggesting that's a good or you know ethical way to do business, but some buyers do it not because they have a genuine desire to buy the company, because but they want to understand you know the the inside part of your business. So it's it's it can be a tricky kind of process to navigate for sure. Yeah, that uh, that sell or be crushed, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of implication is uh, is often out there. All right, in my experience, I mean, listen, is there some risk that you could lose that 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 first opportunity? Yes, in my experience, the buyer, if it's a real buyer who's really going to hold, you know, to what they've offered, and is not just trying to get information or not just trying to get you interested, and then on due diligence they're going to start shaving down their offer, they'll stay in the mix. You know, like if they if it's a real deal and they want it and they they you know whatever because they're they're big boys and girls and they understand that you know if you're if you're going to play like a big boy and girl and you know and, and do what you should do and get professionals involved, you know they'll they'll generally respect that and frankly in my mind if they don't they're probably not the right partner for me. Yeah, I mean I think I agree with you 100, Corey. I think there's a difference between having an M and A professional. Again, I re- reiterate I'm not an M and A professional, so that's like I, I'm not saying this from a position of, of self-servingness, but having an M&A professional at the table to represent you does not mean you have to go run a giant process with 500 people. So some people, some buyers will not participate in a beauty contest. They, they yeah. will not participate in an auction process. They will say, you want Mr. Or Mrs. Entrepreneur, you have the right to run an auction, totally get it, but we're not going to participate. That's, I think, different. And, and there will be some buyers that do that. So part of the M&A professional's job is, is to downplay the number of potential acquirers they have at the table, to downplay you know, the competitive nature of what they're doing. They're trying to, in a, in a very artistic way, suggest that the person, the, you know, you, Mr. And Mrs. Buyer, have some sort of unique or off-market access to this deal, even though there are two or three other companies that are also in the, like, it's a very, very artistic dance they take you through. Because if they're too heavy-handed and say, you know, offers are due at Monday at you know, 9 a.m. And we're going to 300 people, unless you have the next Google, the next whatever, Facebook, Instagram, a lot of people will opt out and say, I don't want to be part of that. So there's there's a lot of nuance to it. But a good MA professional is able to toe that sort of line, create competitive tension while not alienating potential acquirers. And so again, it's very difficult to do that on your own. Like you want somebody who has the, the, uh, 
the dexterity, the the EQ to be able to to, to navigate that conversation on your behalf. Yeah. Because if you're in too, if you go too heavy handed saying, well, we're going to shop this thing to 300 people and your offers are due, a lot of people will be like, good luck, we're out. <laughs> and so there's some subtlety to it. Yeah, and listen, that takes, you know, and all of these things are a little different industry to industry, even in even market, you know, obviously it's very different if you're in a super hot market. Oh, for sure. Less so, you know, so, and it's why, you know, good professionals will help you um, understand, you know, the landscape there and put you in the best position. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. John, talking about market, you know, and obviously every industry is different, but you know, a lot of the questions that have been coming up lately of various to my clients in various industries is, of course, hey, you know, we've been we've had a good run here, right? You know, there's been in many, many markets, there's been a huge amount of capital that's come in. Obviously, you know, the economy has been, I guess we, I don't want, obviously we had a pandemic, but there are, I think the most accurate description of what happened in the economy and uh, during the pandemic was the, this concept of the K economy. We had some industries that were on the downstroke, but there were plenty that were on the upstroke. I mean, we do a lot of financial services and tech, and those those industries boomed, you know, during during the pandemic. So there's at least been, you know, uh, uh, you know, healthcare, logistics, a bunch of sectors that did well, um, you know. And in general, you know, it's been it's been a good time, you know, for for deals. Uh, and there, you know, has been a lot of capital, and it hasn't been a lot of headwinds, uh, maybe pandemic aside, in some industries. But now, you know, we we hear the R word, you know, and I hate to, you know, I. You know, I hate to create self-fulfilling prophecies like the news starts talking about recession and then everybody like, you know, so I, I really try to avoid that. But, you know, listen, um, the market stock market's been been volatile and, and down in, in, in correction territory now. Interest rates are going up, you know, some world events and whatever. Um, what what are you seeing with all the people you talk to, all the entrepreneurs, all the M&A professionals? What, what's the mood out there? What are you seeing? How is it affecting deals? Uh um, I won't ask you to predict the future because none of us can, but how, you know, how is it, how is it starting to affect deals at all? Yeah, I think most entrepreneurs want to time the market, right? So, so I think we all want to sell our business at the, at the peak. That's the, that's, that's what we aspire to do, right? So the peak is when our business is booming, interest rates are rock bottom, economy's booming, and, and we somehow magically nail that. In reality, nobody has a crystal ball to your point. I think it's very hard to time the market. And I think it's actually a bit of a fool's errand. Yeah. Here's why. I think what an M&A professional will tell you is, and again, this varies a little bit by industry, uh, but most industries will trade in a fairly confined range of multiples. So they'll trade, you know, most, most industries will trade at two turns between the trough and the peak. What that means is two turns of multiples. So for example, if, if, in, a, if in a great economy, your business would trade at five times EBITDA, in a terrible recession, it might trade at three times EBITDA. Yeah. And, and so you could say, okay, well, then I've got to wait until we have a great economy and I can get five times EBITDA for my business. The challenge is you've got to go do something with the money. So if you sell it five times, the chances are that the same market conditions that allow you to go out five times are also inflating every other asset class that you will go buy with the proceeds. So you sell your company and what are you gonna do with it? You're gonna, you're gonna buy the stock market, you're gonna buy commercial real estate, you're gonna buy residential real estate, you're gonna buy vacation property, you're gonna buy Bitcoin, whatever. All of those asset classes are going to be inflated at exactly the same rate as your privately held businesses. So you go buy the top of the market. Equally, if you sell at the trough and you only get three times, well, guess what? You go get to buy those assets in their trough. And we did some analysis and we looked at a company that sold at the peak of 2007, right before the Great Recession, and took the proceeds, put it in the stock market. And then another seller who sold at the near, like 
January 2009 when the stock market dropped below 7,000 and got the bottom of the market for her business. And of course, 10 years later, the person who sold at the bottom and put the money in the stock market has well outperformed the person who sold at the top. And again, would we all like to time the market? Of course we would. And will we all go buy something with what, you know, some people will be smart and put them, you know, proceeds in a money market fund for two years, but most of us will go buy something. And as a result, I think trying to time your, the market is somewhat of a fool's errand. I think what you're better off doing is timing the sale of your company when you're on a winning streak, when your business is on a winning streak, when it's really not dependent on you anymore, when you've won some new business, when you've got a great pipeline, regardless of what's going on in the market. Yeah, you'll get the prevailing price for what your business is worth given the market conditions, but you'll also get to buy into those same market conditions. So I, th- I, think, I think that's the way to sort of time it when your business is on a winning streak. Yeah, that, I think that's such great advice, John. And uh, the other thing, um, I think I might have mentioned this uh, recently, but I think it was, um, I think it was, uh, might have been November, October, November of 2011, I did a solo cast where I had done some research because at that point it was clear interest rates were starting to push up. The Fed had announced they were going to do a number of rates. And, and I look back uh, on something that I just, I mean, I've been doing this for 35 years. So I just, you know, felt it was true. And then I looked, I did the research and there is no correlation. There is zero correlation between rates of deals getting done and interest rates. Okay. Mm-hmm. There have been years where there's been super high interest rate environments and there's been a huge number of deals done. Not so much, same in low, right? So there's no correlation. Now, obviously, listen, some things change, deal structures change in riskier environments. Maybe there's less money up front, more on the back end. Yes, multiples, valuation change. But in terms of in terms of deal flow, which is really, really interesting, right? You would, people, I think their automatic default would be be to think that in bad economies, there are fewer deals, but in bad economies, there are more opportunities in many ways. And there's so many companies that have been super successful that have been born. In fact, you know, there's there's stats that show that a lot of the great companies have actually been born during, you know, challenging times. So, you know, I I think uh, talking about mindset, I think uh, some of these assumptions, you know, you know, about when, it's appropriate to do a deal, you know, like John was saying, is really the, the statistics, uh, you know, bear them out in various ways, whether it's John's example about, you know, selling high and then having to buy high, or, or it's uh, the lack of correlation between interest rates and, and deal flow, you know, it all supports the fact that, you know, there's, there's, always, there's always an opportunity to do a deal. It depends upon, you know, just what type of deal and, and, and you know, and, and, and your timing. So um, I was just going to, I was just going to pick up on, on, on that, point and just provide your listeners, entrepreneurs listening with, with just another perspective on answering the question, when's the right time? Yeah. And another way to think about the right time is when you crest the freedom point. What's the freedom point? It's the, it's the point at which the after-tax proceeds of selling your company will create a nest egg large enough mm-hmm. for you to live for the rest of your life and fund the lifestyle that you want for the rest of your life. And you may say, well, like, why is that important? I think it's important to remember because if you go back to why you started your business, I would challenge you to ask why that was. For a lot of entrepreneurs, it's because they crave freedom. Freedom yeah. is this is this currency that is there is the kind of underpinning of everything that we do. Is that that independence, that desire to not be beholden to someone else, to call our own shots, to decide what and when and where we want to do what we want to do, and and for a lot of us, we lose that as we build our companies, they become larger and we've got responsibilities and mouths to feed and employees that are angry. And all like, we have all these sort of things that make us feel heavy again. And, and I would just go back to what was the aspiration in the beginning for a lot of entrepreneurs, I'm not saying all, uh, but for a lot of entrepreneurs, the aspiration was freedom. And when your company, by selling it, would garner enough after cash proceeds to give you the freedom to fund the lifestyle that you aspire to have, it's at least worth asking the question, is now the time? I think it's at least worth asking the question because we have the tendency to move the goalposts, right? The yardsticks, oh, we reached 5 million. Well, now we can reach 10 and we we keep, and then we wake up when we're 75 in the hospital because we've had some sort of health event and think, oh man, like I, the last 20 years have been a bit of a blur and I'm not sure I enjoyed them. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just worth 
asking, maybe now's the time, even though there is more money to get, more money on the table, more meat on the bone, maybe now. So just worth thinking about. I love that point, John, because, yeah, listen, if you've gotten to that, that point where the number is high enough where you never have to earn another dollar, for example, right, and you can live your life the way you want it. And by the way, I could see, you know, an argument for it, but at least it, I like the way you put it. It's at least a time to look and say, hey, yeah. is this the time? Because, yeah. Yeah, 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 because if you, you know, all right, so maybe you could have gotten a couple, uh, a few more million if you waited to another time, you know, but is that really worth it? And listen, you may evaluate that and say, you know it what is it worth. is because above living this great lifestyle, I really, listen, my, I, I can, my wife and I just went through this process. We do it periodically, but we, we just recently sat down again with our, our financial advisor and we gave them some scenarios. We said, hey, let's say we want to, and, and by the way, I, I don't know whether my, what my timing is or whatever, but I want to know what my options are, right? Sure. So, we, you know, I'd say, hey, let's say five years from now, I never want to, you know, uh, I never, I'm never going to earn another penny, right? And I want to continue the lifestyle we live now. What will that take? Right. And then I said, give another scenario. I want to, uh, you know, have a lifestyle where I've got a couple hundred grand a year more. Right. than we have now. Right. Because maybe I want to travel more or for my wife and I, we want to do more uh, charity travel, stuff. Like, or whatever. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Totally. Um, so, you know, so we want to, and, and that at least gives us the opportunity. You can say, OK, if I sell my business now, I can live lifestyle I'm living. Great. Is that is that good? Or do you want to hang in there because you do want to, you know, be able to give a million dollars a year to charity or whatever it is, right? But you get to make those choices, which is which is phenomenal. Um yeah, yeah people people think wealth also is like, you know, everybody's heard the old analogy that, you know, like uh you know, improving your wealth beyond a certain point is, it doesn't really improve your satisfaction with life. And, and I think everybody's sort of heard that sentiment. I think it's around, I want to say it's around 70 grand a year. Once you get past that in terms of annual income, the the, the incremental improvements on your lifestyle are, are very modest, right? In, in terms of your life satisfaction. I would actually take it a step further and say, it's actually more of a cliff you start dropping off. And, and, and so I would argue that there is a point of wealth that, that more actually diminishes your lifestyle. Like you think about Elon Musk, the world's richest person, I believe, or I can't remember if it's Bezos or Musk, but who cares? Musk is up there as one of the wealthiest people in the world. What does he have? Two or three wives. He's got five kids. He, you know, he can't move outside of his factory without being photographed by a listed paparazzi. He's pictures of him shirtless in Greece, jumping off a boat. We, you know, like he he doesn't have any of the freedom that most entrepreneurs desire. Is he having a huge impact on the world? Obviously. Is he fulfilling a, a very important role in society? Yes. But I would argue there's actually a point where you now have to start worrying about, you know, the safety of your kids and do I need to get security in the house? I mean, there's all this stuff that, that actually starts to undermine the quality of your life. So look, I think, I don't know when that happens, but there's a point where there's so many zeros in the bank account that it, it actually undermines your quality of life. So I don't think it's linear. I think there's, there's actually a point where it starts to drop. I agree. Listen, I've I've said to friends and family, whatever, like, I don't care how much money I, I there is no amount of money you can pay me to live that kind of life. Right. There yeah. there isn't. There isn't, right? I took you know, whether it's stars and celebrities, the business people, whatever, you know, I mean, if if I can't go out and 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 you know, if my kids are getting, you know, if I kids if they were getting photographed, if, if I don't have any any privacy, if I can't just go uh, take a walk, all right, uh, you can't pay me enough money. To, to live that life, you know? So I, I 100% agree. Um, John, before I ask you my final two questions, one of which you previewed a little, a bunch, which is interesting, uh, but uh, anything else that just comes to mind? I, I know, listen, you and I, because we live in this world, we can, we can have a week-long podcast and not cover, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, you know the, the full majority of what there is to talk about in this space. So this is a pretty open-ended question, but is there anything you know, in particular, that's either been on your mind or that's a big piece we haven't covered, you know, piece of advice or, uh, you know, interesting uh, last story that you want to tell before I uh, before I ask the last two questions. No, I mean, I think we've had a pretty wide, you know, ranging discussion. Uh, and and I think, 
yeah, I, I would go back to the timing. I mean, I know it's a tumultuous time for a lot of people and people are worried about, you know, gas prices in Europe and heating your house. Like there's all kinds of stuff going on. And, uh, and I think, I think that's important to listen to from time to time, but also remember that what really matters is, is your business, the, what, you know, why you started it. And uh, so I think we've covered a lot. Love it. Okay, great. Um, so, uh, my second last question is just give people, I mean, we mentioned some of the books in the podcast, whatever, but you know, what's the best place for people to find out more, more about you, um, website links, contact, yeah, social just, media, whatever it is. Yeah. Just built to sell.com and you'll find me and social and the podcast and like that built to sell.com. Awesome folks. And listen, definitely check out, I mean, John's got some great content out there, whatever. Any, any of you who know me know I come from an abundance mentality. So, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I am not like I encourage people to listen to other podcasts. I think, I think you know, uh, John, John's podcast, this podcast have some of that. But the truth is we talk about all kinds of deals and just shifting the mindset and looking at different opportunities. And we do have amazing folks like John on and investment bankers and other entrepreneurs have sold their company that talk about some of these things about, around exit. But this podcast doesn't focus like John's, you know, podcast focuses on, you know, really delving in and, and being consistently talking about every week uh, this whole conversation of how you exit and build enterprise value and find the right buyers and do it. So, you know, for those of you who are interested in in, in really getting into that that piece, definitely, definitely go check out John's podcast and his books and, and the other stuff he does. He does great, great stuff. Um, so, John, my final question, which uh, is the one I said, you know, you previewed, I always end the podcast the same way, uh, which is uh, my highest um, value in life. My highest uh, ideal in life is freedom. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it is for me, it means everything from freedom from all people in the world from oppression to why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss for, you know, decades. Uh, so what is I know you, I know you talked about it generally and about, you know, uh, entrepreneurs in this concept of freedom. But what does freedom mean to you personally and how does it impact your life and business? Yeah, we did some psychographic research into entrepreneurs years ago, and we discovered there are three different motivational profiles of entrepreneurs. Uh, we call them mountain climbers, freedom fighters, and craftspeople. Okay. And so mountain climbers are motivated by top-line revenue growth, yep. Yep. craftspeople motivated by mastering their craft, being yep. the best at what they do, and freedom fighters uh, motivated by independence. And so yeah. for me, I'm a freedom fighter. I have the aspiration to, you know, do what I want when I want to. And, and sometimes that means, uh, you know, going to see my kids volleyball game because I can, I was just talking to them the other night over, we do a, a little round of gratefuls around our dinner table most yeah. nights. And, and my grateful just last night was, uh, I am grateful. I have the flexibility to come see your games because, uh, I, I never, I never have anyone to answer to other than myself and I can always decide to go and I do. And that's hugely important to me. And I'm grateful for that flexibility and freedom. So that's what it means to me. Love it. John Warlow, thanks for being such a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Thanks, Corey. It was fun. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, Go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.